0: Welcome to episode 7 of the Next Gen cast, and in this episode we have a slightly different guest. Today I was speaking to Karen McCluskey. She does have a link to the NHS because she used to be a nurse, but that's not why I wanted to speak to her. Karen's worked in the police for the last 22 years, and actually she's currently chief exec of Community Justice Scotland. She was the director of the Scottish Violence Reduction Unit for the last 10 years... And they proposed a really different way of addressing violence in Scotland with things like injury surveillance, gang intervention and a focus on preventing knife carrying and injury. And her, her drive and what she achieved is just mind blowing. I heard her on a podcast a few years ago and I've never been able to forget her story. I never really expected that she'd say yes to coming on this podcast and speaking to me. So I'm so happy that she has because I think we have so much to learn from it. So enough from me. Here's Karen telling her incredible story. Karen, thank you so much for joining us on the Next Gen cast. I heard you on the Reasons to be Cheerful podcast a couple of years ago with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd, which I really like. And I just remember walking and listening to that and stopping in my tracks and thinking, wow, I think I listened to it about four times. So I never thought you'd say yes, but oh, thank you so no, much. Obviously. The reason that I, I liked it so much was because we talk a lot about leadership in this program. And for me, leadership isn't a noun, it's a verb, it's, it's doing stuff. And you've done some absolutely extraordinary things with some hugely complex individuals with complex problems. And I, I think people are going to be blown away when they hear your story. So I feel like I should stop talking. And I'll just let you talk, tell us your story. Okay, so
1: it's a bit complicated, so it actually starts off in health. I, um, I don't think I knew what I wanted to do when I left school, but I trained as a nurse. I think I was, you know, I was no loss to the NHS eventually, but worked in emergency departments and then went and trained as a forensic psychologist. Nursing right the way through, worked in Northern Ireland during the troubles um, and then Various different careers, and I then did a masters in what would be called offender profiling. So my my real speciality and the thing I really love is gangs, how people operate in groups, whether that's politicians, whether it's GPs, whether it's you know whether it's people who are you know involved in knife carrying. I joined the police. I went in as as an, an intelligence, so the sort of I suppose it's probably the the more sort of in secret side of the business where you're intelligence gathering, looking at how people um, operate in their environment and sort of moved around a lot of police forces. And then eventually made my way back to Scotland in 2002 with a very young baby. And when I got back, it was a really fascinating thing. You know, I'd been away for such a long time. I'd sort of forgotten what it was like. You know, and I mean, Glasgow's got an interesting, Scotland's got an interesting history. If I asked you what a typical Scottish person was, I bet your violent, angry and drunk would come up, you know, in some of your adjectives. You know, we have a, a, a stereotype that's particularly unhealthy. And when I'd been in West Mercia, a place, I think we'd had about three murders in two years. And it was a really unusual event, a terrible, horrible event. And then I got back to Scotland and and was working in Glasgow. And we had four or five over the weekend. And it was just, you were setting up incident room after incident room after, you know, homes rooms. And it was just that, it was just what it was like. And I read a BMJ paper, actually. I met some, some of the ED consultants who are pretty amazing. And they were so expert in dealing with knife penetrating trauma. They were renowned. I mean, people wrote BNJ papers about them. You know, they'd done more thoracotomies in a year than any other hospital in the UK at that point. But that's not a great thing to be proud of. And in fact, the other thing that, of course, we had was in a huge level of facial injury. We have a, you know, what's called the Glasgow Smile, where, you know, you put a knife down the face. We had one every six hours, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So if you wanted to do maxilla facial surgery, you came to Scotland. And it was just, you know that bit, I had a moment, a little bit of a, no, you know, you're not in Kansas now, Dorothy. And so I took three weeks off. I had a holiday. I was a single parent. And I wrote a report for the chief constable that pretty much said, despite the best 30 years of policing, you've made no difference to prevention. And you need to do something different. And here's some thoughts when I look at it now, Nish. (laughs) It's so rudimentary and, you know, ridiculous. And I'm embarrassed when I read it, but he was a great leader. He was a great leader because he didn't kick me out and say, off you go to traffic. What he said was, do you know what you want to do? And I think I must have crossed my fingers. And he said, when you go and do it. And that was such, I, I suppose that was my first real experience of great leadership. He was a very senior leader, Pretty amazing man, but absolutely knew that prevention was the thing that mattered. And off we went. Uh, me and a colleague called John Carmichan, who was, I was head of intelligence analysis. He was deputy head of CID, a very grizzled Glaswegian detective. And, and we just sat in a room and that is how we started. And we just thought, we, we actually called ourselves the violence reduction unit, not making it any worse. You know, because it was so bad. That actually you could, you had to be innovative, you had to be a disruptor, and you actually had to change things. And, and we started the Violence Reduction Unit, we started it in 2004, and over the next 16, 17 years, we took our homicide rate, but that was much higher than London's and, and other places, and down to the lowest records since records began, since 1974. Our violence has gone down. Um we we don't have I mean when I speak to the young FY1s in the EDs now, you know, they think it's difficult and I'm looking at the consultants who have been used to dealing with all this penetrating trauma and they say it's night and day. You know, so it's been a really interesting journey. Complex, complicated, full of really difficult conversations. And sometimes the old let's go to the mattresses. You know, that really difficult. We just need to change this. And sometimes you need to pull people along with you to make it happen.
0: So how did you, can you tell us what you did? So we started off
1: really simple. I mean, it was really interesting. So, I mean, I, I mean I'm really curious about how crime happens. So I met a, I met a bus driver uh, and he said to me, oh, you know, I've not got a bus just now. He said, because my buses are off the road. He said, because we've got all these slashings of back seats." I thought that's interesting. So I phoned the bus company and I said, tell me all the routes that your seats get slashed on. And I worked out all the routes that people were coming into the city centre with knives. And then we went and we stopped the buses. And we engaged with all the young people and we told them what we were doing. And we, you know, we started to do some really interesting stuff. And we, we just tried to address some of the issues that that we had for policing. Because remember, we couldn't engage anybody else until we had the policing moral high ground. Because I was meeting victims' families and they're saying, what are you doing about this? You know, I mean, I met a, a, a man whose son Damien had been stabbed to death by, by a man who was on bail for carrying a knife for the second or third time. And he was saying, you should have prevented this. And he's quite right, we should have prevented it. And so we just started doing lots and lots of things and we worked with whoever stepped forward first. And you know who stepped forward first? The emergency room consultants. They were amazing. A registrar called Michael Sheridan said, can I measure how many people are coming in as a result of violence? And of course, when we actually measured it, they were actually seeing 70% more people than we were actually recording. So when the police were crime crimes gone up 2%, down 3%, up 4%, it meant nothing because doctors were seeing so many more people so, and there was a whole range of reasons why people didn't report, they didn't trust the police, they were going to exact a revenge and they were on their phones thinking, you know, he's going to get a bleacher, I'm going to go and get him. And so there was a whole range of complicated factors that we, you know, that we started to do and I hung around in a lot of emergency rooms often stand at the bottom of people's beds, you know, when they came in with often quite serious wounds, often in their, in their, uh, in their bums, I have to say, and saying, you know, are you done yet? This isn't looking too good for you here. You know, are you ready, big man to change? And, and, you know, using that sort of teachable moment to try and think, how do we get you out of this? Because it wasn't just victim and offender. Sometimes it was just who came off worse than a fight. And so you were a victim one week, an offender the next, a victim the next week, an offender the next. And so it was, so we started off like that, and we just started off with people who said, I absolutely, I I understand what you're trying to do. So the ED consultants absolutely saw it, doctors saw it. Others didn't. I remember going to the prison service, you know, and and saying to, me and my colleague went to the prison service and said, we want to reduce violence. And somebody really senior in the prison service at the time who's now gone said, it's too big, don't bother. And that was it, he gave us a cup of tea and a biscuit and we never went back to see him.
0: How did you feel though? Did you feel maybe I? Did you ever doubt yourself in what you were trying to do?
1: No, never. You know, I, I think I have just been imbued with this, you know, I feel like a dog with a burst ball. You know that, I feel like I'm going to savage it until it gives up. You know, but, but you need to. I mean, I always say to people, you only get three chances. You only get three options when you're trying to do something. You can lead, you can follow, or you can get out of the way. <laughs> now, and that's really difficult. And, and I have to understand that there's lots and lots of people who don't want to lead, but are quite happy coming in behind you. And I was really lucky to find the most phenomenal group of people from a whole range of places, from teachers to early years to a whole range of places, who said, you're right, we should change this. I want to be able to shut my eyes and think what Scotland looks like and it's not this. Mm. And so that was, you know, that was really interesting, but I don't think, I think there's always a thing when you're trying to change something that's really dramatic and particularly violence, which, you know, it's on the news and everybody just says, you, know, you just need to lock people up. Well, frankly, America's tried that paradigm. It has not worked. They jail three and a half million a year. And if you think America's free of violence, then we need to speak, you know, so there's that, there was that bit that we really had to think about just doing something really very different and, you know, obviously started to, you know, look at it through a public health lens and, and really get into that prevention space, but not everybody saw it, Nish, not everybody saw it, you know, I mean, you know, that, that senior person in the prison, he saw, I think he just saw the, you know, he just saw the, the group of people that he had and you have to remember that prisons are passive receivers of the damaged. I mean, our prisons are the worst public health problem that we have. Well, used to be the worst public health problem that we had. You know, they're full of people with physical and mental health and often intractable. In Scotland they'll die much younger. You know, so it's it's a it's been a really interesting journey trying to get people to see the change and sometimes they come along regardless anyway
0: how do you balance that so you've got you know people who are criticizing you and you sort of think that's fine you get out of the way but also there may be some useful bits there to consider they might have yeah. some good you can't dismiss everything yeah, right. uh, when you're trying to lead or change something that happens
1: yeah but when you're trying to do something big you need to be able to get traction so the first part is you go with the people who absolutely say, you know, so I, I used to have them in three groups. There was those that saw the light and said, you're absolutely right and I'm with you. So I want to reduce violence. Now, I can still shut my eyes, Nish, and think what that looks like. So I can envisage it, you know. Even now, I'm sort of smiling because I can still think what that looks like. There was a group in the middle who said, I think you're right, but this sounds like more work for me. I'm going to have to change the way that I do things. Now you can convince them. And then there's a group at the end who really just wanted to jail everybody. And it's really interesting. I would say over the over the time that we've been doing this, lots and lots of them have moved into that space that they see that it was right. You know? But success has many fathers, but failure has none. Have you ever noticed that? Mm, mm, mm. But, you know, and, it, and it's fine. You know, It's you just have to keep on saying it and saying it and saying it again and going out and engaging with everybody. On average, I go out and speak face-to-face with at least 16,000 people. Yeah, last year I did 23,000. Wow. Because I have to go out to communities because it's communities that are most affected and say, what is it you can do? So when they were pointing at me and saying, what are you doing about violence? I'm saying, here's what I'm doing. I am knocking my socks off. I'm in hospitals. I'm, you know, I'm supporting early years. I'm, you know, I'm doing, trying to persuade teachers to do zero exclusion. So when kids are trying to be excluded, I get them to include them more. I talk about trauma and I'm trying to address some of the ways that we, we deal with kids who are very traumatized. But when you're pointing at me, there's three fingers also pointing back at you are you doing about this your communities your families but you have to be on a firm platform and really know what you're doing
0: so you said the ed consultants are receptive the parents are receptive and i can really imagine that and then i picture this and forgive me for having the stereotype but this the gang people the members that you're trying to change were they that receptive
1: so this is the i suppose this is the interest so i was meeting them all the time you know i mean they would come into my office often with stab wounds and, you know, <laughs> you're know, a bit, you know, you're dripping blood on my carpet. And, you know, and, and usually in the absolute depths thinking, I want to change. But we had to do something at scale to get them out. So we had done a piece of intelligence work. We'd worked out, we had about 177 gangs, and probably around three and a half thousand active members in just the east end of Glasgow. So you're talking about scale now. So I had worked in the States for a little bit and I had come across something called Boston Ceasefire. And it was pretty much young African-American men, often involved in gangs. So, you know, Latin kings, four quarters, I suppose what people would, you know, know as the Crips and the Bloods. So real, you know, real difficult, dangerous gangs, often controlling drug territory, usually armed. Um, lots of guns. We don't use guns in Scotland, but we do have a lot of knives. And when I was speaking to them, can I tell you, it was just like being in Scotland. The things that they were talking about that drove them into gangs and drove them into the life that they were, they were, you know, they were in was exactly the same as the life that my young white Scottish man had. Um, you know, they were, they were in poverty. There was, you know, there was often alcohol abuse in the house, there was drugs, there was parental imprisonment, there was a whole range of things. And they did this thing called a call-in. So I remember coming back from the States and going to see the chief constable, great leader, um, and saying, boss, this is what I want to do. We're going to take out a court in Glasgow. We're going to get all these gang members and we're going to put them in the court. And then we're going to stand up and we're going to tell them to stop. And then we're going to provide them our way out. And... He said, is that it? I thought it was a bit more complicated than that. And you could just see him thinking, you two have lost it, me and my colleague John. But again, he just took a a chance. So we took out Glasgow Sheriff Court and we managed to get all these gang members. Not often all for the same gang or different gangs and we filled the court with them. How did you
0: get them to come?
1: Oh, listen, we, did, we knocked on their doors. We, we, it's called a pulling levers approach. So sometimes they were just nosy and wanted to find out what we were doing. And then we, you know, but we got them, like we got school teachers to identify kids, you know, like young people who were getting really drawn in, often really serious violence. We got parents who would bring them along. I mean, just everybody. So it was full. And then we had a chief constable, the chief constable stood up and he said, listen, I've got ten thousand police officers. If I so wish, I can have them all outside your front door, which I always say was a bit of a lie because half of us were on holiday. It was during this, <laughs> and and we started to flash all the pictures round the room. So we had all these gang pictures, and people were pointing and saying, "Ah, oh, there's me," etc. You know, With CCTV. We had everything. And you could see they were like, "Oh," you know, and. It was really interesting when the police were speaking to them. You could see that their chests were out, you know that, their shoulders were back. It was like, come ahead. You know that, it, the police were like a common enemy. And, and the challenges, and we always say that, you know, my name is Legion for We Are Many. There was loads and loads and loads of them and, and they felt power in numbers. And then we had a surgeon stand up. And a, a guy called Mark Devlin, who was a maxillofacial surgeon, who's a specialist in cleft palates. And, and he said, look, here's the babies that I've got on my waiting list. He said, but you guys are slashing each other. And he showed picture upon picture upon picture of all the wounds that he sees. And he said, you go right to the top of my list. He said, so I can't operate on these babies. And, and they couldn't even look at the wounds. You know that? They, they couldn't look at it. It's all right in the street, but they couldn't look at it. And then we had a mum stand up and she just said, you know, you boys might not care about yourself, but let me tell you what happened to me. And she talked about her son who was stabbed in a street and she's, she's actually a midwife. And can I tell you? She said, you know, you might not love the people next to you, but they all of their mums. It's a really interesting thing. And you could have had a pin drop. And then we said, right, you can, you know, it was. I mean, I'm, I'm not explaining this very well because in a way you had to see it because you could actually feel it in the courtroom. I mean, hairs on the back of your neck. And we said, here you are, you can phone us 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. We will come out to you within 24 hours. We'll come up, you know, we'll have a, a plan for you within seven days. You know, really interesting. And then there's a whole range of stuff happened after that. And can I tell you, Nish, I didn't think that anybody, we were overwhelmed. Wow. We could not, we could, we just, we almost couldn't satisfy the demand for people who really wanted out. And, and it was fascinating because, you know, we always say hopeful kids don't join gangs. Kids that have got supportive backgrounds and families and a sense of hope and their lives are predictable and understandable and manageable, they don't join gangs. Kids who are looking for something else and young people who are looking for something else join gangs and sometimes do terrible things. And it was, it was an extraordinary time. It really was. The amount of people that came through our doors. Now, I'd love to tell you that every single person, life changed for them. It didn't. But I am known for second, third and fourth chances. Recovery doesn't happen in a straight line. So, I mean, I have people who have really tested me, obviously, you know, <laughs> with seven, eight and nine. But we always go back. You know, it's a bit like changing your behaviour is difficult because if it was easy, everybody would lose weight the first time they tried, wouldn't they? Mm. You know, but they don't. That's how Weight Watchers makes their money. You know, they rely on people failing. And I have people that fail all the time. And what they're up against, the level of trauma, the level of disadvantage, is huge. It takes them a long time, you know, to to be able to transform their lives. And, you know, and I obviously employ lots of people with a lived experience you know, who've been there, who've often done long sentences. So I'm surrounded by people who are pretty formidable at going out and reaching down and under and pulling those less able along with us.
0: Wow. Karen, it's I'm, I'm like the first time I listened to you on that podcast and I stopped in my tracks. I can't even think about the kind of the people and the, the scale of the problem that you were dealing with. I have so many questions. Um, so you talked about failure there. You talked about some of the people themselves uh, failing and not getting it right. But did you fail at any point in what you were trying to do?
1: Oh, loads of times.
0: I mean, How, I, I actually, how did you keep going? Well, look, I quite like
1: failure analysis. Because, you know, we don't do that anymore. Everybody, the reason that things don't change now in the UK is we've got the terror of error. Everybody is so terrified to take a risk, so scared of getting stuff wrong. But there was nothing we could take off the shelves you know, yeah. I, I didn't have a book that said, here's how to deal with gangs in Glasgow. I mean, we'd had them since, you know, I mean, right back to between the, the wars, 1930s, you know, it was, you know, famous books, No Mean City written about Glasgow and the gangs. So we were dealing with something that was really complicated. So when you're doing that, you just have to think, I know my direction of travel. And frankly, see if you're gonna feel you might as well fail trying to build a cathedral and not a garden shed. <laughs> I love that. You know, because if you're going to fail spectacularly, really, you might as well, because you're trying to do something. I also have got that medical bit of first do no harm. So the people that we really, you know, I really obviously tortured with my you know, obsessive desire to, to change stuff and, and brought them with me, you know, was my team who worked just phenomenally. And then all the other people, I mean, there are thousands of people who stand right beside me who also did this. Because you have to bring them along and often put them in front. My job is sometimes to lead from behind. Hey, you can do this. So when we had, I think in the first or second year we had the murder figures went down. And we had a journalist phone us up and say, oh, you must be delighted. I was like, what, be delighted? we like, eighteen Murders? No. And it, it was interesting. So we... We were asked to do interviews and we'd said, Look, come back in five years' time. Things had started to change then, had started to go down. And when they asked us again, we didn't put ourselves up. We didn't, the police, we just didn't talk about it. We put up teachers to talk about why the murder rate had gone down. We put up emergency room consultants who talked about why the murder rate had gone down because it was all of us, because it was public health and we were all part of it. And unless you put people out there and say, and I'm always saying, this is what the ED consultants did, this is what the GPs done, you know, this is what the teachers did. And I even, God forbid, I appraised some of the politicians because they also had to be there. Whilst I firmly believe that change happens from the bottom up, you also need the top down.
0: So here's a, a question about time scales based on what you've just said, Karen. It's incredible. So presumably you had this vision that was I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years. So, so many questions on that, because, I mean, as a leader, you're not going to see quick wins. So that's difficult in itself. And then you've got politicians who are working on, what, four-year cycles. How do you bring them along with you? So talk, talk to me about the timeframes of all of this. Well, so it was a
1: 10-year plan. I mean, and I, I mean, I wrote it on my kitchen table. I didn't <laughs> ask anybody. I mean, you know, I mean, it was, you know, and I remember joined. My, my colleague, said to me, really? Uh, you know, but we... <laughs> And we said, is it's going to take us 10 years. And we we're quite content. But what we said to politicians was, we'll give you some comfort that things are happening. So we gave them some short-term measures. So it's a bit like the four-hour and waiting target, isn't it? So that's the measure that they think people are being seen quickly. Now, whether that tells you you get great care or not, I suppose is a matter for debate. But we gave them some metrics that gave them some comfort that things were going in the right direction. And then, then we did all the other things. So you almost have to fix it whilst it's moving. So we had a 99% detection rate. I mean, police in Scotland were amazing at detecting, you know, at detecting serious crime, you know, but we caught the feckless and the stupid. I mean, it was not CSI Miami, it was, you know, we had CCTV, we had like DNA, you know, but for the victims' families, it was terrible, terrible. And so, I mean, that was a really interesting thing. But we went to see the politicians and we said, look, we're not looking for cheerleaders. If we get it wrong, you can hold us to account, but you need to sign up to this. And we got everybody to sign up to it in this, every political party. We also managed to get it in the manifestos for the next election. Whoever came in had to take it forward. I mean, who else in their right mind was going to take this on anyway? I mean, you know. I mean that's why I never got married for years. I mean you wanted to leave a woman, you know? But so it's a really it was a really interesting thing because I mean even when I speak to politicians now, I start to talk if I talk about violence or some of the really complicated problems that we've got, like, you know, the size of the prison population or or why all these young men, you know, their trajectory is terrible, I can see them thinking, oh God, this is just too big that and that just leads to you know people doing nothing so we just did something and you know it's i suppose the temptation is to try and do everything but you just can't and so we just you know my colleague john always says you know we start where we are and and that's what we did and and just plowed on relentlessly
0: did you have people saying to you you don't have enough evidence because I feel like we get that a lot in healthcare saying, you, you know, there's no, you no one's done this before. As you said, there's no manual on the shelf. So where's your evidence base? Did, oh, that, did, you, did oh, people oh, say that to you? Oh God, yeah. So,
1: I mean, the amount of academics that came up to me and said,
0: yeah, where's
1: your evidence about why these young people carry knives? You know, and I was like, duh like, listen, I don't know everything, but I know enough to be getting on with. So whilst we're actually doing it, you know, that have that verb in your sentence, the doing word. You can do a bit of research and find it. But listen, we knew enough. We knew enough. I didn't need more evidence. And that bit, let's just delay it a bit so we can get some more evidence. Well, actually, no. Sometimes we just need to, this is not a randomised controlled trial. We need to fix this and adapt it as it's going along. And we had loads of stop-go moments. Are we getting this right? What else do we need to do? What have we learned? A bit like COVID-19. How we deal with patients in ITU? You know, how do we get these people's oxygen saturation up? You know, they didn't have a plan for that. They didn't have the research. They've had to learn as they go along, and so did we. I think the thing that we had a real challenge with, I suppose, was the desire of people to be at that tertiary end of prevention. You know, that just deal with the people who are coming into the emergency rooms and and don't deal with, you know, I mean, things like school exclusion or, you know, I talk about parenting all the time because I love babies. I love babies. I'm a complete baby botherer. You know, <laughs> I, I think it's as close as it gets to being magic without being magic.
0: I completely you know? agree. As a new
1: mum, I completely agree. Oh, and, and equipping parents with the skills to support their kids, to give them all the non, you know, you the, the skills to get through life without bumping the alcohol and drugs and violence. And that's skills like communication and problem-solving, team-working and compassion and empathy. That's all the skills that make you a great human being. So, you know, and these are not opposing moral universities. I, you know, I didn't just have to do the stuff in the EDs. I could also do the parenting groups. I could also talk to parents who were worried about their kids because you were be the same and I'm sure GP colleagues will be the same. I've never met a new mum who looked at their baby in the court and said, I'm going to give you a terrible life. They all love their kids it's everything else, but when you're bringing your kids up and you're in a high-rise flat and there's a domestically violent man upstairs, somebody who's selling drugs across the way and you're, you know, you're in poverty, may try bringing up your kid. That's a big challenge. Mm.
0: And speaking of, of motherhood and being a woman, does that ever come up as a barrier even in your head or amongst no. your colleagues? Is it a male-dominated environment, the one you work in? It still is.
1: So I'll probably get stoned as a witch for saying this. I sit on the justice board in Scotland. And until relatively a few weeks ago, I was the only woman, the only female chief executive in justice in Scotland. i regularly still go into meetings and it will be all men. Equality is a lovely idea, but I've yet to see it realised. Uh, you know, and, and I want it to be better for my daughter. And, and it was, it was, you know. I mean, it was a real challenge. I mean, I have been asked to take minutes. I have been, you know, I've been ignored. You know, it's it's a really interesting thing. There are behaviours that I I probably experienced that now it's a different reality now, isn't it? That I wouldn't tolerate. But at the time, I, I, it's, it's terrible. I just had to really dig deep and go on with what I wanted to do. You know, I, I you know I, I was so, and my colleagues were so passionate about changing some of the really big issues that we, we decided to tackle, but I could write a book. And I, I remember a colleague had said to me, I, I helped out a, an ex-male colleague who had been particularly dismissive, and a colleague said to me, why are you helping him? I said, because it's not about his humanity, it's about mine. Hmm. And, uh, and you know, if I if I go to that lowest common denominator and act in the way that they are, then I'm no better, and things don't change. So it's been a really interesting thing. Yeah, it's been quite wounding at times. It has. You know, I'm I, I'm not I, you know I'm not completely made of tin. But yeah, it has been, and I think it still is to some extent. I mean, I am I'm riven with imposter syndrome. I mean, completely still. Really. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, even coming up to you to speak to you, I'm always thinking, if this is the only time you ever hear me speak, how is it I want to leave you feeling? Hmm. I want to tell your GP colleagues that you're really important. You're critical. I mean, the one thing that the people that I deal with all the time, they don't like social work particularly. They don't like the police. They're not very keen on education because they talk about true and time. You know who they really like? Health, because you're non-judgmental. You know, you've often saved their lives. And and so it's it's so important that you realise you're a critical part in trying to solve this. So I do, I, I, I do it all the time. I mean, whether I'm speaking to, I've spoken to 20 people, I've spoken to 2,000. I have, you know, I've fallen off stages. I've, fallen, I've done that as well. <laughs> I have fallen backwards off the stage whilst forgetting my glasses and fall, fell four feet off a stage. Oh, wow. <laughs> My cock six and got up in a flash. You know, I I used to think that what didn't kill you made you stronger, and it probably has, but it's probably shaped me into a different person. Mm. I'll never be, you know, and I'm always, I mean, I surround myself with really good, you know, I've got a really diverse group of people around me, and I've always thought I'm going to be the leader I would have wanted, you know, when when I was, you know, when I was during my career.
0: And it sounds like you've had some good role models. You talked about your boss at the start.
1: Oh, listen. I've had, um, I have been so extraordinarily lucky to meet some, ah oh, phenomenal human beings, you know, just complete uber medges, you know, from Sir Willie Ray to John Carmack and my colleague who is my closest friend, um, you know, to consultants in the emergency rooms that I have known for 15, 20 years and still know. I set up Medics Against Violence with three consultant maxillofacial surgeons, you know, we go to schools, and we've done that for the last 10, 15 years. We've taken tattoos off people. Um, I, you know, I, I've I, got friends, head teachers, who phone me up and say, we do zero exclusion now, can we? include all our kids. We practice, you know, we have trauma-informed environments and, you know, and, or, or early years teachers, or sometimes just parents, or guys that phone me up and say, I've got a job, or... I've got a new baby and I'm really enjoying being a parent and I'm going to break the circle. And and that's the lovely bit, isn't it? You know? You find leadership everywhere. I think sometimes I think I've been reflecting it recently and I've thought, nobody so my new team came in and I said, tell me what you're good at. And people are quite taken aback, you know, that nobody's ever asked me what I'm good at. Because we always tell people what they're bad at, don't we? That's what your PDR does. That's what your, you know, your, your appraisal does. We're not quite so good at this and this, sure. Karen, you really need to up your game in this. But nobody ever says, you're amazing at that and plays at your strength. And I try always to think, what strengths have you got that you bring to this? Because, I mean, I, you know, I'm Scottish. I'm Calvinist. You could get me speaking about my faults all day. <laughs>
0: I'll not get us anywhere. You've
1: got to think, what are you good at?
0: I'm, I'm nodding away my head's gonna fall off I'm just like absolutely true that is so true and it's helped me so much when I've been able to do that I'm so conscious of your time Karen so I'm gonna try not to ask you too many more questions but a final few if that's okay um something that really kind of hit me when I was listening to you the very first time was I really went away and I wondered where does this woman's conviction come from you're you're so determined, you're so steely, you're so sure of yourself and I love that. Does it if you look back on your your, your life, your career, growing up maybe, does it come from someone or somewhere? Do you know, I don't know.
1: Do you know you're not the first to have asked that, Nish. I don't know. I mean I was it's really interesting. People say to me, You're really extroverted and I'm saying, I'm not, I'm really introverted. But so I, 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 I embrace the Alcoholics Anonymous, I have to fake it till I make it. Because I need to be really convinced about, you know, what I'm doing. I need to set a direction of travel and take people there. I also need to be accountable. So if I get it wrong, you can hold me to account. But when you're dealing with something really complicated, you need somebody to point out the direction and try and encourage you along the way. And, and almost, I always talk about it as leading, leading outside your authority. You know, so that, you know, I mean, I went into every single place. I mean, somebody once said she can get where water couldn't, you know. But you have to, you know, you have to be, you have to really put yourself out there. I mean, I am, I don't know, I have loved it. I have been so extraordinarily privileged to be able to do it alongside people. You have to be
0: willing to make yourself vulnerable, though, to do what you're saying, to put yourself out there and put your head above the parapet and do that.
1: Oh yeah, and I've done things that will, that I feel have scarred me. We we held a, I'd forgotten about it for a long while, I think because I'd repressed it. We we Because I often do often lots with people who offend, but I decided I would have a, a service at Glasgow University for all the families that had been bereaved through murder. No, we couldn't invite them, so we put it in the papers and we said, bring a photo along of the people who you've lost. And I have to say, you know, I mean, I experience a minuscule, an atom of what they've felt. And I, have to, I, could, I, I couldn't have done it again. It was, we had about 50, 60 families. Often people had died 30, 40 years ago. And it was like it was yesterday. And there is something about hearing about the loss. Because, I mean, my journey is all about prevention. I never want to meet another murder victim's family. I just don't. But I will. And and people who I who I hold dear, and, and some of the victims' families, I wish our paths had never crossed. So so that is, I mean, that has been absolutely terrible. I mean, I I have heard the worst of, the worst of humanity. But you have to you have to build some resilience. I have to pick myself up, and and, and get up every morning and think, right, what can I do today? So I try not to really focus on it too much because, you know, it would, it would, it would torture you. Somebody, somebody once said to me, you must get used to this. I said, are you having a laugh? Get used to it. You get used to murder? You know, I mean, nobody gets used to it. You know, and if you do, or if I did, then I'd probably have had to have left.
0: Mm. I suppose it's a bit like being a GP and some of the people that you deal with there you have to learn to connect but not so much that you can't keep helping. Absolutely, absolutely
1: and, it's, and it's, it's an incredibly skilled thing to do but then also protecting your own well-being so you know we have, I hate to say it because obviously we've got a big history of drink but sometimes we just used to go out and have wine you know just decompress.
0: Mm.
1: There's a lot to occasionally be said for that obviously at 50 pence a unit because I, <laughs> I also do minimum unit pricing and I'm um, euphemistically referred to as the alcohol Taliban, but um, yes.
0: Life and soul of the party, the alcohol Taliban, I love it. <laughs> just pay for it. You know. <laughs> and how old are your daughter now, Karen? Well,
1: she, you know, she's just turned 20. She's grown up with us, you know. It's, it's, I do feel guilty, because I, I was a single parent for a long time, and I do feel that I made decisions, I think, along the way, that by hindsight I shouldn't have made. You know, so one of them was about, you know, I did what was called strategic command course. So it's the highest course in policing, you go away. And I remember a different boss coming back and, and he said, well, you know, it's no job for you. I'm going to second you to London. I said, but boss, I'm a single parent. And he said, well, if you want to do it, and you go. Mm-hmm. And, but there is that bit is you know, and there was a bit in me, niche that really wanted to do it. I wanted to show that I could be successful. And in fairness to him, it was a good opportunity, but I should never have done it. I should never have been in the position that, you know, my eight-year-old stayed with mum and dad and I went down to London and came up and down every weekend. You know, so it was, you know, I think there's tough decisions that you make. You know, when my head's in the pillow at night, they've not always been the right ones. But, you know, I have, you know, and and she doesn't see that now. And I think, in a way, she is quite proud. I mean, thinks that I'm an idiot and ridiculous. But is, you know, I think there's a bit that she's learned what it's like sometimes to be able to navigate difficult waters.
0: So just the final three questions that we're asking everyone that comes on the podcast, Karen, if that's okay. Um, so the first is, can you recommend a leadership book that's particularly inspired you? Or if not a book, any kind of resource?
1: Oh, no! how good is... That's a really interesting... So, no books. No books. I went away in a strategic command course. Honestly, I went away for like five, six months. You know, it must have cost hundreds of thousands of pounds. And all I learned was... I'm not as bad as I thought I was. <laughs> um, do you know, see the biggest thing in leadership is having your values in place and be very clear, never, you know, never let them change. Make sure that you're always living by that. It's the best leadership thing that I have ever, ever, ever learned. And I wish I'd, I wish I'd known it sooner. Mm-hmm. You know that? So, you know, your integrity, your moral compass, you know, it, the things that you think that make you you, I think are the things that I really admire in, in other leaders. So I um so I, ma- I managed to meet well not meet but managed to inveigle myself into the same room as Barack Obama. No way. I did. So he came to he came to Edinburgh a couple of years back, and I've got a friend in the Secret Service um, in the States who does presidential protection, etc. I said I'm going to try and get close to him, and he said we will shoot you. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe But, you know, it is really interesting when, I, when I, I look at him. And, you know, and listen, his history was checkered as well. You know, there's th- things that he did that I'm sure he would, have, he would have changed. But there was something about his values always staying the same right the way through his presidency. That I think are indicative of a good leader. And that's the thing that I think matters most to me. I mean, you know, you can read as many books as you like, whether it's about distributive leadership or about, you know, any new type of leadership model, which are values that will be the most important thing.
0: That's fantastic. Thank you. The second question you might have already answered, it's a leader that you admire and why?
1: Do you know, it, you wouldn't even know them. They're just local people in the communities. I really love some of the work that, That we've got mothers against drugs who've who've just done things in the community with no money, but just with purpose and a desire to make things better. I so admire them because they've often got nothing that people would think. Well, you know, you know, bought a house, etc. But they've got some level of I don't know, just personal assets that are amazing you know to to others in the recovery community that just change just thousands of lives they're the ones that i like
0: it's not about the titles
1: it's not it's not about the titles and we look for leaders in their own places don't look up look down look to you know look at the patients that come in through your surgery they're the leaders that we should be looking for
0: and the final question karen is if you could leave people with three, top three bits of advice about leadership?
1: Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I used to have a phrase that, in fact, I use it. In fact, actually, it's from a leadership book by a woman called Margaret Wheatley. And she, I met her eventually, and I said, I use it all the time. Proceed till apprehended. Um, Generally, often proceed until tasered by the chief constable. (laughs) But you know that, just that, just go forward and sometimes go forward relentlessly and it's probably the thing that you know it's probably stuck with me you just need to keep going forward
0: Karen you are just so full of fantastic advice and I've just got all that advice kind of floating around my head that I know is going to come back to me you know leading from the front Um, if you're going to fail fail spectacularly building a cathedral and not a garden shed Um, just start where you are. Proceed until apprehended. Um, And probably my favourite is you can lead, you can follow, or you can get out of the way. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you. And to
1: your colleagues, thank you.
0: So that was episode seven with Karen McCluskey. I think that's definitely a conversation that I'm going to come back to in my GP career when I think about how to tackle those really complex and wicked problems that you, you kind of feel overwhelmed by, but also maybe keep you up at night because you feel you have a responsibility to do something about which is what leadership's about really it's about changing stuff if it's not a noun or a title i'd love to know what you thought of it email us at nextgenerationgp at gmail.com or you can tweet us at nextggp and sign up to our monthly bulletin as ever to find out about future episodes of this podcast and webinars and things that we've got coming up and that's bit.ly forward slash nggp bulletin See you next time.